I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. Jeremy Till is an architect, educator, and writer. As an architect, he worked with Sarah Wigglesworth Architects on their pioneering building, Nine Stock Orchard Street. As an educator, Till is head of Central St. Martins and Pro Vice-Chancellor at the University of Arts, London. As a writer, Till's extensive work includes the books Flexible Housing, Architecture Depends, and Spatial Agency, all three of which won the RIBA President's Award for Research. He curated the UK Pavilion at the 2006 Venice Architecture Biennale and also at the 2013 Shenzhen Biennale of Architecture and Urbanism. Hello and welcome, Jeremy. What attracted you to climate and creative practice in the first place? Well, first of all, although I recognise that your podcast is about creativity, maybe I should just explain and share my reservations about the word. I worry about the word because it suggests that creativity is some kind of mystical art, that it is belongs to the individual, that it's like a muse flies through a muse flies through the window and imbues the the genius individual with a sense of creativity and then they go out into the world with that. And I worry about all of those aspects, about it being attached to the individual, because I think that we should be talking about co-creativity, that individual, some individuals have it and others don't, which I don't believe in. I just think that creativity can be expressed in many different ways. And that in some way one can potentially teach creativity, I think is also a or write a book about creativity. And if you read a book about creativity, it's going to make you a better person. I'm, I'm suspicious, and maybe you can cross-examine me on, on my suspicions on, on all of those fronts. And you may feel that's a strange thing for the head of a internationally renowned Centre of Creative Education to say, but I, I would say it to my students, I'd say it to my staff, so, and I'd probably explain it in, in some length as to why I worry about the word creativity alone. I prefer the word creative practice because that suggests that there are practices which one can employ in, in going out into the world which are creative but that is rather different from going out into the world with a sense of an undefinable creativity. So that's where creativity comes in. The relationship to climate is started, I suppose, at a very personal level of a trip that Sarah, my partner, Sarah Wigglesworth, and I did back in the, God, 19, in 1990, 
when we were on a Fulbright um, arts fellowship and we were in the States and we were in a camper van crisscrossing states. It was absolutely fantastic. And I remember vividly, we were in a campsite in outside Las Vegas where it was, you know, 110 degrees and zero humidity. And so we thought we'd do our washing and we'll hang our washing out on the line. And, you know, that seemed to us quite sensible. And the campsite owner came, came over and said, no, 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 no. We've got to take that down because it doesn't look good to have washing in, in a campsite. I mean, it wasn't a posh campsite, but nonetheless, uh, you have to take it in there. So we went into an air-conditioned room and had to put our clothes into a tumble dryer. And it, it was that kind of sense of environmental madness, which then set us jointly down our paths of, of, first of all, looking at how one might build a sustainable house, although I'm worried about the word sustainable as well, which I could explain if you want to ask me about that. Um, and then has sort of most of my work in one way or another has been to do with issues of most recently issues of climate and in particular how climate and creative practice can and should intersect. Before delving further into climate and creative practice, let's not forget your distinguished background as an architect. I was educated as an architect and I um, practiced architecture for a bit, continued to practice with Sarah Wigglesworth yeah. uh, and built, which is, you know, a, a well-known house. Uh, it was on the front cover of the Architects Journal about, 18 years after it was built with a with a headline which said, is, is this the most influential house of its generation? So I suppose whatever the answer to that question was, it's, it's just <laughs> worth asking. And in many ways, the house was defined through its, through its approach to sustainability and climate. Uh, but when, when we were doing the house, I was also getting involved in academia, first of all, at UCL at the Bartlett, and then as head of college, uh, head of School of Architecture at University of Sheffield, where I think that what we did collectively was sort of quite important on the social political map of architecture education. And then I was at University of Westminster as Dean of Architecture and Built Environment for a bit. And 10 years ago, I came to be head of St. St. Martin's, uh, which was a, at the time a a kind of difficult appointment for me, for me and the college because St. St. Martin's is probably best known for you know being the world's greatest fashion course and having an architect who wrote books um, coming in his head was was seen as potentially problematic. But I'm still here and they haven't killed me yet. The house that you are referring to is, of course, the revered straw bale house that you and Sarah designed in North London, which set the pace for a new blueprint eco-home. And that was done over 20 years ago which transcended the ordinary and routine by reimagining architecture and how people live. Was your appointment at Central St. Martin's intentional in that they seeked a leader who was an outsider from a seemingly dis disparate field to bring a novel approach, perhaps in a positively disruptive way, to advance the college to the next phase of its evolution? Um, I wouldn't say that disruptive change is something that one could inflict on my colleagues at St. 
the Martins because they're inflicting disruptive change in a productive construction yeah. way on the world. But uh, interesting, and probably ne- less good at, at, at accommodating it themselves. And I certainly would not want to in any way, and I don't think I have, throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I think that one of the discussions and the changes, if there has been a change, or I wouldn't say change, more a kind of uh, opening up of the college has been to do with a discussion about the role of creative practice in relation to the external world. Yeah. And so discussion is around right at the beginning I did a risky project called what is the point of art school so the question is what is the point of art school and I, I of course I, I thought I knew the answer and personally and but collectively I that however many years that, that we have answered that question by saying the point of the art school is, is to open up to the outside world and art schools, which I hate as a term anyway, because it refers back to a kind of previous generation of the 60s, um, were or have been, I think in some many cases still are, very internalised places that they talk about themselves, they have a certain set of languages, certain set of behaviours, certain set of rituals, which are played out within a very semi-autonomous and certainly internalised way. And my own work in architecture, but also the discussions we've been having here, is actually that form of autonomy is completely unacceptable. That the the purpose of what we do in terms of our students and staff and in terms of creative practice is exactly to engage with the outside world in a constructive and productive way. And the argument that now we're making around climate is that Creative practice is an absolutely essential part of the discourse of climate. And the reason that we're making that argument goes back to whether it's Einstein or Lord, whoever, who basically says you cannot solve a problem with the same tools that created the problem. Yeah. And the climate emergency is not a problem. It's much much more serious than a problem. You can't solve the climate emergency. It's a much more difficult intersectional set of situations which you can engage with, but you certainly can't solve. And indeed, solving a problem is exactly the, a, a kind of discourse of the modern project which has created climate emergencies. This is the modern project of growth, of progress, of late capitalism, and so on and so forth. All of these things of, of endless consumption, of endless extraction, are exactly the things that have created the climate emergency. And so the argument is, which we're making here at University of Arts next week, quite publicly in a thing called the Carnival of Crisis, is that one needs other ways of thinking to engage with the climate emergency, which is not to throw away science. Of course we need, we need to know about, you know, in my field, about building physics. We need to know about technologies. But technologies alone, or, or a kind of slightly rebooted version of capitalism alone, a slightly rebooted version of capitalism is not is simply going to perpetuate the problem because that's going to be based on systems of consumption and extraction. But one needs to put alongside the the 
the technological, scientific, and, and so-called rational modes of thinking, you need to put creative modes of thinking alongside them, in particular to attempt to think of new futures and, and to think about new imaginaries, because the climate emergency demands systemic change. It doesn't, we won't get there through tinkering with the status quo. We've got to think through new futures, new sets of social relationships, new economic relationships, new spatial relationships, in order to address the world which the, the, is necessary to, to live within the, the state of the climate emergency, which will be perpetual. You know, it's not going to go away. It's going to get worse. And therefore, we need to understand how we might live together within this ravaged planet. And that means that we need to bring to the table these new ways of thinking. And that's where I think creative practice comes in. Living sustainably, like life is dependent on, on healthy living and the environment for the likes of food, air, water, and clean ecosystems that purify the air, maintain the soil, regulate climate, recycle nutrients, and provide food. Providing the best conditions for humanity by setting and managing the, the conditions culturally, economically, pol politically, and technologically by enabling society to, to, to help solve, to help better solve these problems and address the, the, these issues. And so by setting the right conditions inspires creativity and innovation because it affects how people view and interpret the, the world around them and their capacity to, be, to, to become and live more fulfilled and, and, and happy lives. And embracing originality and making unique connections between disparate universes to light the way into the future. Jeremy, what is typically your approach to creativity or your creative process in terms of how do you make the invisible visible by dreaming up new ideas, developing those ideas into concepts, and then bringing those concepts to actualization? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I'm not going to talk about that. Because <laughs> I don't, no, no, seriously, because if, if you talk about Jeremy Till's creative process, it gets back to the kind of Victorian idea of, of, of this genius sitting in a room with light coming in and, 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 and intuitive gestures coming out. So I, I resist the notion of describing creative process. I can describe the context in which a creative practice might operate. I can describe that I think that any creative process has to be driven by values. I can describe that a creative process is, is about intervening in the world. I can describe that a creative pro process is to do with transformation of that bit of the world. But I don't want to say, what I do is I sit down and I sketch. I just think that's rubbish. I mean, it's fine if people do sketch, and that's their way with engaging with the issues. But I don't think it's... And by the way, I, I can't sketch. I can't draw for toffee. I am not particularly creative in the in the in the in the sort of perceived sense of the term i.e. that i have creativity running through my blood and I, I, i'm not even i don't think a particularly good designer in the classic sense of the term and yet i might be quite good at, at 
being able to understand the relationship between knotty problems and then thinking about how one might get through those knotty problems. How I internalize creative practice is feeling empowered, free and safe to express yourself and to create without fear and approaching problem solving openly and innovatively by trying out new ideas and ways of thinking and doing and recognizing that what might have happened in the past and been solutions to problems then is highly unlikely it's applicable to the present time and defining new opportunities that guide us into the future because we are all part of time which goes in one direction only and that's forward. My perspective on the creative process is that it's about making new connections between past and present ideas and infusing economic, political, socio-cultural and technological perspectives in parallel to produce new business models, products, services or experiences that drive positive societal change and, imp and positive impact on, on people's lives. And the steps in the process involve discovering and developing insights, applying divergent thinking to analyze a problem, generating and evaluating ideas that can become concepts, experimenting, prototyping, constructing, then making a plan of action and then bringing that plan of action to life. The process itself is constant and iterative and it is very much based on a co-creative collaborative approach that involves multiple expertise across multiple domains and dis disciplines. And so bringing that to creative practice means in the context of highly performing creative teams, they tend to be self-organizing and the performance from th the experts across multiple domains joint, have joint actions within the, the engagement, the project, they have a shared vision and commitment to the, the purpose and mission at hand. And similarly, the most innovative teams mobilize themselves in response to unexpected changes throughout that creative process or, or creative practice, to, to use your terminology. And they don't necessarily need a leader to tell them what to do. People who have the expertise and passion will step up at the right time to lead and drive the completion of their respective input and add value to the team and solution. And the creative atmosphere that's cultivated provides autonomy and space. And it's liberal, inclusive and meritocratic, yet is entirely focused and motivated to expedite the mission. It starts with a big idea and a shared vision, and then the team works through the details to come up with the big picture and then bring that to life. You cannot simply throw money at creative pursuits and expect instant results. It is a social system made up of a network of relationships connected by a distinguishable similarity of spirit and shared values, which gravitates towards a coherent whole between individuals, groups, communities, cities, nations, corporations, and industries. Could you provide some examples of where you've applied your creative practices? I don't want to give examples, actually, because examples are too, are too partial. Um, I mean, I can give examples. I can, I can talk about the MA Biodesign that we set up here as the first biodesign course in the world and the way that students are working with biological systems as a, as a means to look at the production of new forms of textiles. Or I could talk about our new 
course run by Professor Carol Colley and regenerative design, or I could talk about the project I'm working on, which is about, you know, how, how do we find new spatialities and then new ways in which architects may operate. But each of those are just a, a, a fascinating and sometimes brilliant in their own manner, but are very partial in terms of actually how, how the whole thing stacks up. So I think it's more important to talk about, about ways of thinking and about what designers as, 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 as a, community can bring to the table and you know I, I always use in this context there's a there's a, a an amazing book by the Indian novelist and writer Amitav Ghosh who talks about how the climate emergency is a crisis of culture and therefore a crisis of imagination and so what he's pointing to in that context, is the way that his fellow novelists have basically abandoned the problem. They've been obsessed with the idea of the modernist novel, of subjectivity, of looking at themselves and writing about themselves. And so, you know, someone like the Norwegian novelist Nausgaard, who has spent six pages describing opening a, a muslin package. Um, and he's saying, we, that is a failure. That's a failure, collective failure on our behalf of not using the novel as a form of, of the imaginary in order to open up new possibilities. And I suppose what I'd say in, in terms of design is, is that kind of the use of the imaginary, not, not in a utopian manner, not in a completely speculative manner, but always working with uh, the, the present and, and kind of opening up the present to find new futures. And if very bluntly, and I, I, I use my definition of design is incredibly blunt and simple. So it's not a problem. The 60s definition of design is design is a problem-solving activity. I, I completely disagree with that because what I said before, which is problem-solving is, is, a, is, a, is a terminology of the modern project, i.e. The, through reason, through the execution of design as a, as a rational and linear and whatever process that we, one can solve problems better. Instead, my definition is very simple, which is what a designer does is to take a small chunk of the world and transform it into something better. And <laughs> which is kind of so, so banal in a way. But if I look, I'm sitting looking out of St. St. Martin's incredible view of, of 4,000 students who each in their own way working on a brief is to take a small chunk of the world and make that bit of the world they're working on a bit better. Now, Although that sounds banal, sometimes one needs to be really direct in, in the way that one approaches things. The, the question then is, is to set that making better within the context of the climate emergency. And one can only do that if one intervenes in the structures that have produced the climate emergency. One has to understand, as Naomi Klein so brilliantly explains, the 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 evolution of the climate emergency in relation to capitalism. One has to understand the climate emergency in relation to issues of growth, issues of extraction. And as soon as you understand it in relation to the, its, its formations, then the designer has a context to work in, to intervene in, in order to disrupt those constructions, in order to make their small bit of the world better. And that's where creative practice, I think, is absolutely essential because the, 
science might say they're trying to solve a problem, but they don't do it in a relational manner. They don't do it in an iterative manner often. It's done as a kind of linear manner of, I've, I see one problem here, and I'm going to get to a solution. Now, in some cases, that's absolutely necessary. I want to know the solution to the vaccine of COVID. I don't want, I don't want the designer to come in and sort of say, oh, it might be this or it might be that. I actually want Sarah Gilbert in, in Oxford to go ahead and, and solve that problem. But that's a, that's a limited example, important but limited example, because in relation to the climate emergency, all of these, the conditions which we face in relation to climate are, are related but super complex. So you can only intervene in, in, in partial manner, but in a manner which understands the relational construction of the climate emergency. And that's what designers are really good at. Designers at their best are very good at understanding the relational aspects of, 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 a, of a context. Just to reiterate the problem with the, the individual creative process or even speaking to posh people like me to try to explain the individual creative process. The problem with that is, is that that is the model on which too much, particularly in architecture, I have to say, but in, in some cases in other design schools, that is the sort of Beaux-Arts model of, our, of, of, of design education, particularly architecture education, in which the model basically is, I am a hero, I am your master. If you follow me, you can be quite like me. Not fully like me, because I'm a real genius, and you probably aren't. But I can, at least if you follow me closely enough, you can become a shadow of me. And that is the classic Beaux-Arts model of the atelier system, of the great hero figure who happens to be an architect or a famous designer, and they become the shining light and they shine a bit of light on their students and hope that it sticks. That's absolute rubbish. I mean, it's a terrible system. It's terrible because of systems of power. It's terrible because they're generally male, therefore it's systems of patriarchy. But it's mainly terrible because the students are going to have to go out and confront the world by themselves or with others, i.e. that there is no use turning them into shadow figures of the hero because that is not going to last when they hit the real world. Yeah. And so what design education has to be, and I'm, I'm sure that we are doing it here, is not a kind of atelier system of master-servant or master-student, but something about empowering the individual student so that they have the, the values, first of all values, and then the skills to address the world on their own terms. So that's why I'm, I, I, I can't stand those books which sort of talk about the creative process of the great designers. Effectively, that's what most monographs are. You know, Here is a picture of Jasper Morrison. Here's his latest chair. If you look at the latest chair closely enough, you too could become the next Jasper Morrison. It says nothing about actually what Jasper Morrison has done in relation to that chair. It's just presented as, as the output of his genius. So that's why I'm concerned or suspicious of, of the kind of the model of, of design um, education, stroke journalism, stroke publications, which, which go back time and time again to the great heroic gestures. In terms, though, of how 
my own creative practice, well, not my own creative practice, but how creative practice might work in relation to these global challenges and particularly that of climate. It is to get away from the notion of the problem and solving the problem. I follow a, I use a, the term by a, actually a planning theorist called John Forrester, which is to get away from the notion of problem and just talk about making sense. I trying to make sense of the world. And the reason to repeat what I said before, that I think that designers are in a very strong position to make sense of the world, is that good design operates by understanding the kind of intersectional nature of a context. So that the intersection of, of societal, economic, sometimes aesthetic, sometimes political, sometimes environmental, all of these intersectional issues come together within a particular context. So the context may be quite physical. You know, it may be an urban situation in which you have to understand local politics, the stakeholder, the, 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 the stake of the individual, the, the wider economic structures which affect that local context and so on and so forth. And what designs are very good at uh, is, is then sort of making connections between those constitutions. And that's where I think the creativity, it, creative practice is a really important um, contribution to the discourse around these wicked problems of, of, and, and toxic issues of, 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 of climate. And I don't think that scientists alone have that understanding. And therefore, one needs to bring to the table these other voices. But one also needs to understand that the, the, one also needs to shift away from the notion that creativity is held within the individual in order that the, the addressing of, of these toxic problems of, of climate can, and I use the word problems there knowingly in relation to toxic, because they are toxic in relation to, to global heating in terms of flooding, in terms of mass migration, et cetera, et cetera. But you can bring to the table a sensibility of co-design and co-creativity, which understands all the relational issues which, which climate throws up. Yes, and that, that sensibility means taking a macro view by understanding and infusing economic, political, sociocultural and technological perspectives to truly solve complex problems, society's pressing needs, and that it takes a diverse team and of experts and knowledge to truly make that real through a co-creative and collaborative approach. Yeah, I mean, co-creativity and co-design necessarily has to include a wide range of voices, but importantly, also a wide range of knowledges. Yeah. And one of the things that the Western Modern Project has done is to suppress other forms of knowledge in, in the name of reason. So right back to, you know, the Enlightenment philosophers and the, and the, and the privileging of reason over any other form of knowledge, any other form of, of bodily or subjective or whatever knowledge has been, is still with us. You know, still with us right up to today in, in the budget announcement in, in, in Parliament, which is, which is preceded by not, my God, poverty is a terrible thing in relation to human existence. Oh, no, 
everything is quantified, everything's put onto graphs, everything is graphs need to go upwards because we're part of the modern project, and so on and so forth. So yes, co-creation and co-design has to include other knowledges. And, you know, everybody has experience of the world. Everyone in their own way has an expertise of the world. But because that expertise is not codified and therefore professionalized, those forms of non-codified, non-professionalized knowledges are often excluded from the table of the modern project. And the book we're reading as part of the Architecture After Architecture project, this research project about climate, and a really important book is by D'Souza Santos called The End of the Cognitive Empire, where he's contrasting the, the knowledge of, of the global north, in particular of the modern, Enlightenment modern project, with the suppressed forms of knowledge of, of the global south, of indigenous knowledge, of, of narrative knowledge, of knowledge of the storyteller, of knowledge of, of the vernacular. And all, all of these things will become more and more important in in talking about about climate so the indigenous knowledge of let's say um of an indigenous community in in north america who understand and have always understood that actually our it only can be seen in relation to the non-human as well Either humans have to understand planet as, as an interrelated of human and non-human systems. They've understood that. That's that's the whole of their, their culture, the whole of their of their being is wrapped up, or, or whether it is the indigenous communities in 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 Australia in relation to the songlines. You know, the songlines are all to do with me and our collective in relation to the earth, in relation to the non-human, in relation to nature, in relation to other animals. And so those kind of ways of thinking need to be brought to the table. And then what the designer does is to, is to kind of understand how a bit of scientific knowledge can be joined together with a bit of indigenous knowledge in order to address and make sense of the climate emergency. Spot on, Jeremy. Take, take the Native American uh, spirituality principles around living in harmony with the earth, honouring each other and respecting the interdependence of all life. It's remarkable that you've sustained optimism throughout time that continues to inspire and provide leading-edge thinking, learning and, and, and doing. In my position as head of this extraordinary place, um, I... I I'm allowed to be critical. I'm allowed to be provocative, but I'm not allowed to be a pessimist. Yeah. But I have to believe that what we're doing here collectively is a project of optimism. Now, optimism needs always to be not tempered, but it needs to be situated. Yeah. I unfettered optimism will will just burn out very quickly. So the optimism always has to be grounded, which is why I'm, I'm suspicious of, of notions of just kind of unfettered utopia or of pure speculation. And I know that that is seen as, I'm often criticized therefore for being conservative by saying, oh, we should just allow your students to speculate. Whereas I think that unfettered speculation is deeply conservative. That I think because it doesn't actually affect change. It's, it's indulgent. 
So I think that any form of, of, of creative practice has necessarily, and you know, here am I sitting as Head Simpson Martins, I have to maintain on, on my students' behalf an optimism, even if I am personally compromised about my generation's ability to have screwed up the world to the extent it has, and my pessimism about my generation's ability to even engage with the, with the crisis. I have to, on behalf of my students, maintain an optimism, but at the same time, that optimism has to have a, a grounding. Yeah. It has to be contextualized, and it has to have a, mainly it has to have a criticality about it. By reinventing old ways of doing things with original and often groundbreaking perspectives, one that rejects convention and challenges the status quo, by continually analyzing and questioning the everyday life, one can lead creatively and provoke actions that bring about change. Some of the situationist manifesto theories and philosophies come through within some of your creative practice. Yeah, I agree. So bringing it all together, Jeremy, what is creative practice not? Creative practice is not about the production of innovative form. Creative practice is not about the production of individual subjectivities, although those that may come into it. I, I, I think it is really important for my students here to be allowed to talk about their identities and be allowed to talk about their anxieties within the world. But then that is situated within a wider context. So if someone is dealing with their identity as a, as a non-binary person, that's an absolutely valid vehicle for their creative practice to, to, to engage with as long as it is set within the wider discourse around about around gender rights and so on and so forth, I would say. So I think that creative practice is also not to do with a kind of heroic problem solving, as, as it, it has been described before, nor is creative practice to do with itself, which I'm afraid too often it has been. Yeah. I, creative practice is, is a sort of an examination of, of its own discipline or whatever. So, and creative practice should never be taken away from an ethical foundation, which, which again, it too often has. I, there's an argument, particularly in architecture, but I've seen it in other fields too, that in some way we can remove ourselves from the, the social and political life world because we're, we are so wrapped up in the production of beauty or we're so wrapped up in the production of innovative form but that's clearly rubbish any any form of creative practice is inevitably political not political left-wing right-wing but political because it affects people's lives in one way or another and therefore creative practice is is to, in a double negative is not apolitical <laughs> um, and has therefore to face up to its social, political, and mainly ethical responsibility. Jeremy, in the spirit that our outputs are the next generation's inputs, which obviously comes with accountability and responsibility, to pass the baton to the next generation, leaving the world in better shape, what would that baton be and stand for 
in terms of defining the legacy you want to leave behind? Oh God, that's a difficult question because I, I, I it's not for me. <laughs> I always say it's, it's not for me to define what a personal collective legacy may be. It's for others. Yes. I, I, I can't, otherwise it just becomes a, a project of vanity and that's, that's really dangerous. But I suppose it is to do the, the, the definition of ethics that I use is that of Sigmund Bauman, and comes from someone else, uh, which is to be ethical is to be responsible for the other. And therefore, it is that responsibility for the other, which I think is the main thing that I would like to pass on. And the, the other is both human and non-human. The other is multiple. The other is collective the other is people who use things people who shouldn't consume things it is completely multiple but it's how therefore a designer in any sense whenever they're engaging with a project is always engaging with it in the end in relation to their responsibility to the other and that means a opening up, that means a generosity, that means an empathy, that means an understanding of, of diversity, of, of intersectional issues, and just being both generous and curious about what the other might mean and how one might be responsible to them. How soon is the future? One thing for sure is, the future is unwritten and everything is possible. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers, how to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate, and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.